Robinson Crusoe, Part 14. This recording, copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com. Narrated by Alessandro Chima. A Candlelight Stories audio production. The Life and Strange, Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, by Daniel Defoe. I soon found a way to convince him that I would do him no harm, and, taking him up by the hand, laughed at him, and, pointing to the kid I had killed, beckoned to him to run and fetch it, which he did, and while he was looking to see how the creature was killed, I loaded my gun again, and by and by I saw a great fowl, like a hawk, sit upon a tree within shot, so, to let Friday understand a little what I would do, I called him to me again, pointing at the fowl, which was a parrot, though I thought it had been a hawk, I say, pointing to the parrot, and to my gun, and to the ground under the parrot, to let him see I would make him fall. I made him understand that I would shoot and kill that bird. Accordingly, I fired, and bade him look, and immediately he saw the parrot fall. He stood like one frightened again, notwithstanding all I had said to him, and I found he was the more amazed, because he did not see me put anything into the gun but thought there must be some wonderful fund of death and destruction in that thing, able to kill man, beast, bird, or any other thing, near or far off, and, I believe, if I would have let him, he would have worshipped me and my gun. As for the gun itself, he would not so much as touch it for several days after, but would speak to it, and talk to it as if it had answered him, which, as I afterwards learned of him, was to desire it not to kill him. Well, after his astonishment was a little over at this, I pointed to him to run and fetch the bird I had shot, which he did, but stayed some time, for the parrot, not being quite dead, was fluttered a good way off from the place where she fell. However, he found her, took her up, and brought her to me. And, as I had perceived his ignorance about the gun before, I took this advantage to charge the gun again, and not let him see me do it, that I might be ready for any other mark, but nothing offered at that time. So I brought home the kid, and the same evening took the skin off, and cut it up as well as I could, and having a pot for that purpose, I boiled or stewed some of the flesh, and made some very good broth. After I had begun to eat some, I gave some to my man, who seemed very glad of it, and liked it very well, but that which was strangest to him was to see me eat salt with it. He made a sign to me that the salt was not good to eat, and putting a little into his own mouth he seemed to nauseate it, and would spit and sputter at it, washing his mouth with fresh water after it. On the other hand, I took some meat in my mouth without salt, and I pretended to spit and sputter for want of salt as fast as he had done at it, but it would not do. Having thus fed him with boiled meat and broth, I was resolved to feast him the next day with roasting a piece of the kid. This I did by hanging it before the fire in a string, as I had seen many people do in England, setting two poles up, one on each side of the fire and one across the top, and tying the string to the cross-stick, letting the meat turn continually. This Friday admired much, but when he came to taste the flesh, he took so many ways to tell me how well he liked it that I could not but understand him, and at last he told me he would never eat man's flesh any more, which I was very glad to hear. The next day I set him to work to beating some corn out and sifting it in the manner I used to do, and he soon understood how to do it as well as I, especially after he had seen what the meaning of it was, and that it was to make bread of, 
for after that I let him see me make my bread and bake it, too, and in a little time Friday was able to do all the work for me as well as I could do it myself. I began now to consider that having two mouths to feed instead of one, I must provide more ground for my harvest and plant a larger quantity of corn than I used to do, so I marked out a larger piece of land, and began the fence in the same manner as before, in which Friday not only worked very hard, but very cheerfully, and I told him that it was for corn to make more bread, because he was now with me, and that I might have enough for him and myself too. He appeared very sensible of that part, and let me know that he would work the harder for me if I would tell him what to do. This was the pleasantest year of all the life I led in this place. Friday began to talk pretty well, and understand the names of almost everything I had occasion to call for, and of every place I had occasion to send him to, and talk a great deal to me, so that in short I began to have some use for my tongue again. Besides the pleasure of talking to him, I had a singular satisfaction in the fellow himself. His simple, unfeigned honesty appeared to be more and more every day, and I began really to love the creature, and I believe he loved me as much as possible. I had a mind once to try if he had any lingering inclination to his own country, and having learned him English so well that he could answer me almost any questions, I asked him whether the nation that he belonged to never conquered in battle at which he smiled and said, Yes, yes, we always fight the better. That is, he meant, always get the better in fight, and so we began the following discourse. You always fight the better, said I. How came you to be taken prisoner then, Friday? Friday. My nation beat much for all that. Master, how beat? If your nation beat them, how came you to be taken? Friday, they, more than my nation, in the place where me was, they take one, two, three, and me. My nation overbeat them in yonder place, where me no was. There my nation take one, two, great thousand. Master, but why? Did not your side recover you from the hands of your enemies, then? Friday. They run one, two, three, and me, and make go in the canoe. My nation have no canoe that time. Master. Well, Friday, and what does your nation do with the men they take? Do they carry them away and eat them, as these did? Friday. Yes. My nation eat man's, too, eat all up. Master, where do you carry them? Friday, go to other place where they think. Master, do they come hither? Friday, yes, yes, they come hither, come other else place. Master, have you been there with them? Friday, yes, I've been there points to the northwest side of the island, which it seems was their side. By this, by this, I understood that my man Friday had formerly been among the savages, who had used to come on shore on the farther parts of the island, on the said man-eating occasions that he had been now brought for, and some time after, 
when I took courage to carry him to that side, he presently knew the place, and told me he was there once when they ate up twenty men, two women, and one child. After I had had this discourse with him, I asked him how far it was from our island to the shore, whether the canoes were not often lost. He told me that there was no danger, no canoes ever lost, but that after a little way out to sea there was a current, and a wind, always one way in the morning, the other in the afternoon. This I thought to be no more than the sets of the tide as going out or coming in, but I afterwards understood it was occasioned by the great draft and reflux of the mighty river Oronoke, in the mouth of which river, as I thought afterwards, our island lay, and that this land which I perceived to the west and northwest was the great island Trinidad on the north point of the mouth of the river. I asked Friday a thousand questions about the country, the inhabitants, the sea, the coast, and what nations were near. He told me all he knew with the greatest openness imaginable. I asked him the names of the several nations of his sort of people, but could get no other names than Caribs, from whence I easily understood that these were the Caribbees, which our maps place on that part of America which reaches from the mouth of the river Oronoque to Guiana, and onwards to St. Martha. He told me that up a great way beyond the moon, which must be west from their country, there dwelt white-bearded men like me, and pointed to my great whiskers, which I mentioned before, and that they had killed much mans, that was his word. By all which I understood he meant the Spaniards, whose cruelties in America had been spread over whole countries, and were remembered by all the nations, from father to son. I inquired if he could tell me how I might come from this island and get among those white men. He told me, yes, yes, I might go in two canoe. I could not understand what he meant by two canoe, till at last, with difficulty I found, he meant that it must be a large boat, as big as two canoes. This part of Friday's discourse began to relish with me very well, and from this time I entertained some hopes that one time or other— I might find an opportunity to make my escape from this place, and that this poor savage might be a means to help me to do it. I was now wanting to lay a foundation of religious knowledge in Friday's mind. Particularly, I asked him one time, who made him? The poor creature did not understand me, but thought I had asked him who was his father. But I took it another way and asked him who made the sea, the ground he walked on, and the hills and woods. He told me it was one old Benamucky that lived beyond all. He could describe nothing of this great person, but that he was very old, much older, he said, than the sea or the land, than the moon or the stars. I asked him then if this person had made all things. Why did not all things worship him? He looked very grave, and with a perfect look of innocence said, All things said O oh, to him. I asked him if the people who die in his country went away anywhere. He said, yes, they all went to Benamucky. Then I asked him whether those they eat up went thither too. He said, yes. From these things I began to instruct him in the knowledge of the true God. I told him that the great maker of all things lived up there, pointing up towards heaven, that he governs the world by the same power and providence by which he had made it, that he was omnipotent, could do everything for us, give everything to us, take everything from us, and thus, by degrees, I opened his eyes. He listened with great attention, and received with pleasure the notion of Jesus Christ being sent to redeem us, 
and of the manner of making our prayers to God and his being able to hear us, even into heaven. He told me one day that if our God could hear us up beyond the sun, he must needs be a greater God than their Benamuki, who lived but a little way off, and yet could not hear till they went up to the great mountains where he dwelt to speak to him. I asked him if ever he went thither to speak to him. He said, No, they never went that were young men. None went thither but the old men, whom he called their Owakaki, that is, as I made him explain it to me, their religious or clergy, and that they went to say, Oh, so he called saying prayers, and then came back and told them what Benamaki said. By this I observed that there is priestcraft even amongst the most blinded, ignorant pagans in the world. Sending him for something a great way off, I seriously prayed to God that he would enable me to instruct this poor savage, assisting by his spirit the heart of the poor ignorant creature to receive the light of the knowledge of God in Christ, reconciling him to himself, and would guide me to speak so to him from the word of God as his conscience might be convinced, his eyes opened, and his soul saved. When he came again to me, I entered into a long discourse with him, upon the subject of the redemption of man by the Savior of the world and of the doctrine of the gospel preached from heaven, namely, of repentance towards God and faith in our blessed Lord Jesus. I then explained to him as well as I could why our blessed Redeemer took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham, and how, for that reason, the fallen angels had no share in the redemption, and he came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and the like. I had, God knows, more sincerity than knowledge in all the methods I took for this poor creature's instruction, and must acknowledge what I believe all that act upon the same principle will find, that in laying things open to him I really informed and instructed myself in many things, that I either did not know or had not fully considered before, but which occurred naturally to my mind, upon my searching into them for the information of this poor savage, and I had more affection in my inquiry after things upon this occasion than ever I felt before, so that whether this poor wild wretch was the better for me or no, I had great reason to be thankful that ever he came to me. My grief sat lighter upon me, my habitation grew comfortable to me beyond measure, and when I reflected that in this solitary life, which I had been confined to, I had not only been moved myself to look up to heaven, and to seek to the hand that brought me thither, but was now to be made an instrument under providence to save the life, and, for aught I knew, the soul of a poor savage, and bring him to the true knowledge of religion and of the Christian doctrine, that he might know Christ Jesus, to know whom is life eternal. In this thankful frame I continued all the remainder of my time, and the conversation which employed the hours between Friday and me was such as made the three years which we lived there together perfectly and completely happy, if any such thing as complete happiness can be found in a sublunary state. The savage was now a good Christian, a much better one than I, though I have reason to hope, and bless God for it, that we were equally penitent and comforted restored penitence. We had here the word of God to read, and no farther off from his spirit to instruct than if we had been in England. I always applied myself to reading the scripture and to let him know as well as I could the meaning of what I read. 
After Friday and I became more intimately acquainted, and that he could understand almost all I said to him, and speak fluently, though in broken English to me, I acquainted him with my history. I let him into the mystery of gunpowder and bullets, and taught him how to shoot. I gave him a knife, which he was wonderfully delighted with, and I made him a belt with a frog hanging to it, such as in England we wear hangers in, and in the frog instead of a hanger. I gave him a hatchet. I described to him the countries of Europe, and particularly England, which I came from, how we lived, how we worshipped God, how we behaved to one another, and how we traded in ships to all parts of the world. I gave him an account of the wreck which I had been on board of, and showed him as near as I could the place where she lay, but she had all been gone long ago. I showed him the ruins of our boat, which we lost when I escaped, and which was now fallen almost to pieces. Upon seeing this boat, Friday stood musing some time, and said nothing. I asked him what he studied upon. At last, says he, me see such boat like come to place at my nation. I did not understand him a good while, but at last, when I had examined farther into it, I understood by him that a boat, such as that had been, came on shore upon the country where he lived, that is, as he explained it, was driven thither by stress of weather. I presently imagined that some European ship must have been cast away upon their coast, and the boat might get loose and drive ashore, but was so dull that I never once thought of men making their escape from a wreck thither, much less whence they might come, so I only inquired after a description of the boat. Friday described the boat to me well enough, but brought me better to understand him when he added with some warmth, We save the white mans from drown. Then I presently asked him, if there were any white mans, as he called them, in the boat. Yes, he said, the boat full of white mans. I asked him, how many? He told me upon his fingers, seventeen. I asked him, what became of them? He told me, they live, they dwell at my nation. This put new thoughts into my head again. For I presently imagined that these might be the men belonging to the ship that was cast away in sight of my island, and who, after the ship was struck on the rock and they saw her inevitably lost, had saved themselves in their boat and were landed upon that wild shore among savages. Upon this I inquired of him more critically. What was become of them? He assured me. They still lived there. That they had been there about four years, that the savages let them alone, and gave them victuals to live. I asked him how it came to pass that they did not kill them, and eat them. He said, No, they make brother with them. That is, as I understood him, a truce. And then he added, They not eat mans, but when make the war, fight. That is to say, they never ate any men but such as come to fight with them, and are taken in battle. It was after this, some considerable time, that being on the top of the hill at the east side of the island, from whence I had, in a clear day, discovered the main or continent of America, Friday, the weather being very serene, looks very earnestly towards the mainland, and in a kind of surprise, falls a-jumping and dancing, and calls out to me, I asked him what was the matter. Oh, joy, says he. Oh, glad. There, see my country. There, my nation.
I observed an extraordinary sense of pleasure appear in his face, his eyes sparkled, and his countenance discovered a strange eagerness, as if he had a mind to be in his own country again. And this observation of mine put a great many thoughts into me, which made me at first not so easy about my new man Friday as I was before, and I made no doubt, but that if Friday could get back to his own nation again, he would not only forget all his religion, but all his obligations to me. But I wronged the poor honest creature very much, for which I was very sorry afterwards. However, as my jealousy increased and held me some weeks, I was a little more circumspect, and not so familiar and kind to him as before, in which I was certainly in the wrong. Whilst my jealousy of him lasted, I was every day pumping him to see if he would discover any of the new thoughts which I suspected were in him, but I found everything he said was honest, and so innocent, that I could find nothing to nourish my suspicion, and, in spite of all my uneasiness, he made me at last entirely his own again. Nor did he in the least perceive that I was uneasy, and therefore I could not suspect him of deceit. One day, walking up the same hill, but the weather being hazy at sea, so that we could not see the continent, I called to him and said, Friday, do not you wish yourself in your own country, your own nation? Yes, he said, I be much glad to be at my own nation. What would you do there? said I. Would you turn wild again, eat man's flesh again, and be savage as you were before? He looked full of concern and shaking his head, said, No, no, Friday, tell them to live good, tell them to pray, God, tell them to eat corn bread, cattle, flesh, milk, no, eat man again. Why then, said I to him, they will kill you. He looked grave at that, and then said, No, they know kill me. They willing love learn. He meant by this they would be willing to learn. He added they learned much of the bearded mans that came in the boat. Then I asked if he would go back to them. He smiled at that and told me he could not swim so far. I told him I would make a canoe for him. He told me he would go if I would go with him. I go, said I. Why, they will eat me if I come there. No, no, said he, me make them no eat you, me make they much love you. He meant he would tell them how I had killed his enemies and saved his life, and so he would make them much love me. From this time I confess I had a mind to venture over and see if I could possibly join with these bearded men, who I made no doubt were Spaniards or Portuguese, not doubting, but if I could we might find some method to escape from thence, being upon the continent and a good company together, better than I could from an island forty miles off the shore, and alone without help. So after some days I took Friday to work again by way of discourse, and told him I would give him a boat, to go back to his own nation, and accordingly carried him to my frigate, which lay on the other side of the island, and having cleared it of the water, I brought it out, showed it him, and we both went into it. I found he was very dexterous at managing it, and would make it go almost as swift again as I could, so I said to him, Well, now, Friday, shall we go to your nation? He looked very dull at my saying so, which, it seems, 
was because he thought the boat was too small to go so far. I told him then I had a bigger one. So the very next day I went to the place where the first boat lay, which I had made, but which I could not get into the water. He said that was big enough. But as I had taken no care of it, and it had lain two or three and twenty years there, the sun had split and dried it, that it was in a manner rotten. Friday told me that such a boat would do very well, and would carry much enough victual, drink, bread. That was his way of talking. Upon the whole, I was by this time so fixed upon my design of going over with him to the continent, that I told him we would go and make one as big as that, and he should go home in it. He answered not one word, but looked very grave and sad. I asked him what was the matter with him. He asked me again thus, "'Why, you angry, mad with Friday, what me done?' I asked him what he meant. I told him I was not angry with him at all. "'No angry! No angry!' says he, repeating the word several times. "'Why send Friday home away to my nation?' Why, said I, Friday, did you not say you wished you were there? Yes, yes, says he, wish we both there. No wish Friday there, no master there. In a word, he would not think of going there without me. You shall go without me. Leave me here to live by myself as I did before. He looked confused at this, and running to one of the hatchets, which he used to wear, he takes it up hastily and gives it me. What must I do with this? said I to him. You take, kill Friday, says he. What must I kill you for? said I again. He returns very quick. What you sent Friday away for? Take, kill Friday, no send Friday away. As he spoke, tears stood in his eyes, and I was so affected that I said I would never send him away if he was willing to stay with me. I found that all the foundation of his desire to go to his own country was laid in his ardent affection to the people, and his hopes of my doing them good, a thing which, as I had no notion of myself, so I had not the least thought or intention or desire of undertaking it. But still I found a strong inclination to attempting an escape, as above, founded on the supposition gathered from the former discourse, namely, that there were seventeen bearded men there." And therefore, without any more delay, I went to work with Friday, to find out a great tree proper to fell, and make a large periagua or canoe for the voyage. After searching some time, Friday at last pitched upon a tree, for I found he knew much better than I what kind of wood was fittest for it. Nor can I tell, to this day, what wood to call the tree we cut down, except that it was very like the tree we call fustic, or between that and the Nicaragua wood, for it was much of the same color and smell. Friday was for burning the hollow or cavity of this tree out to make it into a boat, but I showed him how, rather, to cut it out with tools, which after I showed him how to use, he did it very handily, and in about a month's hard labor we finished it, and made it very handsome especially when with our axes, which I showed him how to handle, we cut and hewed the outside into the true shape of a boat. After this, however, it cost us near a fortnight's time to get her along, as it were, inch by inch, upon great rollers into the water. But when she was in, she would have carried twenty men with ease.
Candlelight Stories audio production.